Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak with Michael Hillard, author of Shredding Paper, Labor and the Rise and Fall of Maine's Mighty Paper Industry, newly published by our ILR Press imprint. Michael Hillard is professor of economics at the University of Southern Maine and has published widely in the fields of labor relations, labor and working class history, and the political economy of labor and capitalism. Michael has taught and written about the history of U.S. corporate governance, and especially the pernicious effects of financialization since the 1980s. We spoke to Michael about the many powerful interviews he had with the workers and managers of Maine's paper industry. How his research found that the main culprit for the industry's decline was not offshoring nor automation, but the Wall Street takeover of American manufacturing. And how Maine's folk political economy, the lessons that the workers and the managers learned during this time period, can potentially help our country shape more viable economic models for everyone involved. Hello, Michael. Welcome to the podcast. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, it's our pleasure as well. And we want to congratulate you on your new book, Shredding Paper, The Rise and Fall of Maine's Mighty Paper Industry. Tell us the backstory. How did this book come about? Uh, Well, um, I guess it goes back to my undergraduate and graduate school days um, where I was just born to be an interdisciplinary person. I had an undergraduate program called Social Thought and Political Economy, ranging a bunch of uh, big topics. In graduate school, I studied uh, mainstream economics and radical political economy. But uh, all the way through my experience as a student, I um, had a great labor history mentor, uh, Bruce Laurie, and uh, really like thought that labor history was the leading perspective to make sense out of American society, politics, class, race, gender issues, all of that. So that was my background. And I had a department that was fortunate enough to let me teach that. Uh, teach labor history along with with, uh, political economy and economics classes. Um, I came to a state um, that is a very working class state with a very distinct history and being the state of Maine. Um, And the labor uh, situation in the paper industry when I got here, so paper was the biggest uh, industry in the state of Maine, kind of like as I start the book, you know, like Maine was the Detroit of paper, just nobody knows that. Um, and it was being roiled by these uh, really strikes that turned out badly for the workers. Um, and so I became very engaged in it. And then, you know, I decided as I was approaching 40 that I wanted to do a really substantial piece of primary research. Um, and my passion was labor history. And, you know, I kind of dug around a little bit and I realized that there was very little literature nationally or locally on uh, labor in the paper industry. The, the last real good book that, or really maybe the only good academic book before mine uh, that told the story of the labor movement in the paper industry was written by a historian named Robert Zeiger, and that was in 1984. So, you know, it was about 20 years ago, and then serendipity, I, there's a, uh, the oldest paper mill in the country that's still running is four miles from my house and from uh, from my uh, my office at the university. So, and I had students who were no, who knew that they were going to lose their jobs. They were 40 years old. They were coming back to school um, to make a career transition because they knew their mill was laying off workers. Um, and so I just started there. And, and I had a passion for qualitative research. 
Uh, I really think that, you know, cultural analysis through interviews is a really robust form of research. Had a really good colleague who I think in my book named Artis Cameron, who is a distinguished oral historian who kind of turned me on the literature of community memory and things like that. Um, and in the end, you know, it's sort of like, I think every group of workers that have a unique experience deserve to have their story told. But as I'll probably elaborate a little bit more, this industry that was iconic to the state was in rapid decline, you know, being roiled by strikes and workers being permanently replaced and things like that. Um, and I sort of realized that it wasn't just a labor story, but it was a story of a, of a place. Um, you know, and again, most labor history, history uh, texts uh, are very community-based studies. That's a kind of classic way of, you know, Lawrence or Pittsburgh or something like that. The thing about the paper industry, though, is that paper industry, um, uh, for reasons I explained in my book very thoroughly, um, went to very remote areas because the paper industry needed uh, rivers with waterfalls um, and dense forests. And uh, there were not a lot of places that were ideal for that, but in, in the you know, late 19th century, Maine was the place to be. Um, and the thing about that is that because uh, paper mills are in rural regions far away from cities and universities, I think that had a lot to do with why it was a less studied story. So I knew there was a story to tell uh, that sort of a broad um, uh, audience in my state in northern New England would be interested in. And then I think for posterity, telling the story of uh, this particular group of workers in a, in a very unique industry um, was worthwhile. So that's how I kind of got into it. Um, and the oral history stuff turned out to be fascinating because it's like being a historical detective. And as soon as you talk to a few people, like these things emerge. Or, you know, in one the case that I talk a lot about in my book about this local mill, S.D. Warren, was found in 1854. It's like these I walked in, talked to these 70 and 80 year old people who had worked there for their whole lives. And all I wanted to do is tell me about the founder of the company and all the great things that the company used to do. So like, this was like the community conversation, like SD Warren was this unique, generous employer. And, uh, and they had very specific like rescue stories and things like that. And it fit into the community memory piece. And so, um, and then people in the main labor movement are like, hey, there was this incredible strike 40 years ago up in the northern part of the state in Madawaska, and there was a logger strike. So these stories that kind of emerged from being, you know, ethnography really means that you're doing cultural analysis uh, in an embedded place, and you learn about things in a lot of different ways through interaction. And because I was connected to the labor movement in the state, um, people came forward with all these stories, leads, talk to this person. And so, uh, so it kind of took off from there. And, but also as a political economist, um, you know, one of the things that um, has a lot to do with the reading and writing I do and teaching is just understanding the historical phases of capitalism and having political economy concepts to understand that. A uh, big thing that I talk about in my book is how uh, the paper industry came to Maine right at the beginning of uh, what historians consider to be the second industrial revolution. The first one is in Great Britain uh, initially, and then the United States developed a mass production capacity um, that advanced it way past uh, England in the mid to late 19th century. Um, and any industry that could mechanize and invest in heavy capital and uh, figure out a mass production system um, had a mass market to, to sell it to. And so there's a very distinct story there. And again, you know, there, there's, there, there was historical work done, business history done on the paper industry, but again, very, very kind of scant. Um, 
So, uh, you know, I, it kind of emerged as to what story was I going to try and tell. I was going to try and tell the story of these workers. Um, and I'd focused in my book mainly on the period after 1950, but the backstory of how the industry came to Maine, what it was about, its labor process, um, the labor relations relations, which were paternalistic for a very specific set of reasons, um, it just kind of emerged. So it was, a, it was a great process. It did take me over 15 years to do it, but um, uh, it was just this kind of labor of love that unfolded um, as I engaged it, um, and this thing took shape, and, uh, you know, and then the book came out of it. So, Wow, wow. I, I love that approach that you've taken that you, you mentioned. You have qualitative research. You have the, the stories of the workers, some of them in your own class, but also you're right in the community. So you have this bottom-up history, lived history told by the workers themselves. And then you also have this kind of meta picture, this top-down history of the forces acting upon workers. Tell us about how this approach gelled and, and some of the stories that emerged from this. Fusion. Well, I mean, it partly gelled through my own reading of multiple fields. So like, you know, as I said, I came out of graduate school in the 80s with a political economy background and political economists who have a connection to sort of Marxian inflected economic history, the transition to capitalism and so forth, globalization. Um, um, and then uh, and then in the 90s, um, before I, in the 2000s, about the time I started the book, uh, I started to read a lot more deeply in the um, uh, industrial labor relations field, um, which at that time was starting to put out books that talked about specifically how a change in capital uh, from that mass production era and a certain kind of uh, uh, managerial model. It was called managerialism or corporatism, or um, I used the business historian Alfred Chandler as sort of like the anchor for understanding that. So there used to be this kind of, you know, generous corporation that took care of its workers in the community and things like that, and, you know, invested in the long term, and then how that all went away. Um, and as I was reading uh, a lot of this literature 20, 25 years ago, um, you know, globalization is sort of the hook that almost everybody in the public understands about what's changed about American capitalism. Like, why is manufacturing been in decline? Oh, well, all the jobs went to China. Um, and that's like an easy answer, but it turns out to be a limited answer. Um, and what I saw in a number of different sources and also in my political economy field, I was interested in what's called heterodox macroeconomics. And so this term fi financialization came to describe uh, the rise of sort of what I would call the Wall Street takeover American industry in the 80s and 90s and the sort of debasement of employment relations and you know, driving companies into the ground and all that kind of stuff. And that, that, that was a separate process from globalization. Globalization you know, was a, a confounding factor also in the decline of a lot of industries. But uh, the financialization piece, especially 20 years ago, in most contexts was really under-recognized. I think now it's increasingly recognized and I'm continuing to research and write about it after my book. But, um, and then what happened is, is that, you know, in my interviews, uh, what my informants, the 150 or so that I talked to over um, a plus 10 year period, uh, included lots of managers. You know, that's one of the things the labor relations field taught me is that if you're looking at labor, you're really looking at labor management. And so you have to understand management. Again, the labor relations field is very good at that. And I found a really interesting story and I interviewed some fantastic managers, you know, and spent their career in the industry and had all kinds of insight about when they got merged with Scott or international paper, what happened. And then, you know, um, you know, and they told the stories of essentially the undermining of industrial competence. Um, 
And, uh, and, and what I was learning was that the industrial competence of the paper industry is very, very distinct. Um, one of the things I do stress in my book very much um, is that while um, the paper industry in Maine was part of this mass production revolution, it wasn't an assembly line revolution because paper production is so incredibly intricate. It's chemically based. Um, you have these huge runs of paper that are easy to spoil. They tear, they have spots. They don't have the right characteristics when it gets to a fancy, you know, printer that's making glossy magazines or whatever. Um, and so, you know, the story emerged about how there was this really powerful industrial competence at the heart of the story, um, uh, going back to the late 19th century and how much financialization undermined that, the sort of turnover of uh, owners at the top who come in and you know, change their business model without really knowing what they were doing and uh, not listening to the workers and not honoring the sort of traditional reciprocity between management and labor. So, so this is very rich story um, that would be inadequate if I just told the labor story or I just told the business slash capitalist story. And so, um, you know, my interdisciplinary background gave me those multiple lenses. Um, and then the material itself, again, you know, the, the many stories that I talked to. I mean, I, I interviewed people um, who were born around 1910 and who started in the industry in the 20s and 30s. Um, you know, there's nothing more amazing. I mean, I look back on, you know, 18 years ago, like one summer I interviewed four or five people in their 90s who just could tell me the arc of most of the history of the industry. Um, and so, you know, it's just, it was just a wonderfully sort of organic process, but at the heart of it was that I think the proper way to tell a story about labor and capitalism is to understand the experiences of the workers and the nature of their work and the nature of the organizations and the social movements that they have, things of that nature, but you really have to understand the context. Uh, and the context is, um, and I, I quote that phrase that you mentioned before from Leon Fink, who's a labor historian, that political economy, in short, is the forces acting upon workers. And so there was one set of forces that had to do with that second industrial revolution, the business model that I talked about is sort of a patient long-term capital managerial that could accommodate unions. And in the case of paper industry, what was unique is that even before unions became a constant in the industry around 1940, for the 60 years before that, the skill uh, in dedication of workers was so crucial that the employers were already very generous. And that's where those origin stories came from, is that they remembered a kind of capitalism that existed before where, you know, basically, um, there was this sense of absolute security, but also respect. And, you know, again, when you interview workers um, in any, you know, I mean, like I, I teach about labor, you know, I'm reading about Walmart and um, uh, child care and elder care workers who are treated poorly right now. And like people want dignity and respect in their jobs. And there was a, a version of that that was very central to the culture uh, and the technology and the practices of the industry for a long time. And then it all kind of went away pretty quickly in a 20 year period. And so people lived through that could kind of um, really uh, paint a vivid picture of something that I was reading about in academic sources, but you know, they told me the sort of live story. And so in the end, you know, I think um, kind of complex to use an academic term, complex binaries can turn out to be really interesting. So you know, the binary of capital and labor, like this one has all these paradoxes in it, you know, and uh, the nature of the work had paradoxes in. One of the things that I highlight 
Um, and if I'd had more time and energy, I would have done more with, and I have a second book in mind that might explore some of this stuff. But, you know, one piece of the industry is that it's a chemical industry, right? It's like you make paper with chemicals, with chlorine and 17 other different kinds of very toxic chemicals. Um, and so, uh, you know, when a paper mill is making pulp, which would sometimes run pulp and then maybe not run it on the third shift and then run it again, you could smell it for 10 miles away. And it's this horrible sulfur smell. And when I first came to Portland, the local SD Warren mill was still making pulp up until 1999. And, you know, the wind would come from the West on a day they were making pulp. And it was just like incredibly disgusting. And the workers, you know, had this phrase widely used. I was able to find lots of citations for it when I looked, looked it up later that they called it the smell of money. Um, and as I say in the book, there's sort of a profound but understandable act of denial that workers uh, uh, and managers and people in the community went through, which is that they were working in a bad chemical factory. Um, there's a really... Uh, a uh, potent narrative uh, in a book that came out the same year as mine, Milltown, um, by somebody who grew up in one of these uh, paper mill towns, Carrie Arsenal's the uh, uh, writer, and she basically grew up in, you know, a cancer cluster. Um, there was a doctor in her town, it's Rumford, one of the iconic um, paper mill towns where Oxford paper uh, was uh, created over a century ago. And uh, Carrie Alston just like chases down this story. She starts with the family history, but then she and the family history is all about how, how everybody dies of cancer at a premature age and rare cancers. And then turn out there was this town doctor that explored that. So, you know, people put up with um, punishing um, shift work um, because of how they wanted to distribute kill, the skill within the factory. Everybody rotated through the three different shifts every month. Um, and so once a month you were doing midnight to, to eight o'clock um, and then switching on to the day and switching on in the evening and switching on to the night. You did that every month for like 40 years. You didn't, uh, you, you work most Sundays. You didn't get to go to church. You didn't get to go see your kids, you know, march in the high school marching band or things like that. I mean, they all talk about how much they gave up for that. And so, uh, you know, one of the things that was really remarkable about is just how, uh, this industry, which was so generous to them and gave them a higher standard of living and more, especially more economic security and a fair amount of voice in their job compared to any other blue collar job in Maine. On the one hand, on the other hand, they had to put up with all of this stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, people get into their middle ages, 50s and 60s and get really pretty horrible diseases and die young. Um, and that was all kind of accepted as part of it. So to me, it's like, the story of the main paper industry is a really good example of all the contradictions of capitalism that many good and brilliant things go on. I put uh, the term mighty paper industry into the title of my book because I was trying to figure out a way to capture like how remarkable this industry was um, that nobody really understood. And when you dig into it, it's sort of like, oh, my God, you had no real no, no, no sense that. There was that much technology in the 19th century that they were hiring uh, MIT chemists in the 1890s to come to Maine to help figure out uh, their chemical processes, uh, how they made the best paper. And that's one of the things that I highlight in my book is that, um, you know, paper is one of those things that's just in the background. Like um, everybody knows it's there. You take it for granted. You don't think about it. Like you have toilet paper, but you have like you pick up a glossy magazine and that's starting to go by the wayside with uh, you know, digital production and the internet, but up until fairly recently, everybody had coffee table books and 
corporate annual reports and stuff like that, um, cardboard boxes. And so like the number of products in the industry is really remarkable. Um, and, uh, you know, the skill that it would take from the research and development department to the engineers and first hands on the shop floor to the people who packaged it was really just remarkable. And so, you know, to me, it was like this was uh, one of the great manufacturing legacies in the country um, and kind of taken for granted, not very well understood. So it was really, um, in many ways, just such a great experience to learn uh, that remarkable story and then learn the workers' experience and, you know, how the great things and the warts and the horrors all fit together. So that's kind of like the way, um, so that sort of two-sided story in a whole bunch of different ways uh, is really what kind of emerged for me. It, it is an incredible story. And the interviews that you have, particularly with managers, that, there was one phrase that, that came through in the book where one of the managers said that they felt that the Wall Street takeover was almost like, a, like an invading army and and that is so visceral. It's 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 so frustrating uh, for me to hear these stories where you have this industry at the top of its game, making the best paper in the world, and then completely undermined from within by these financial forces. It's it's mind-boggling. And I know it's not just the paper industry. This is like manufacturing as a whole around the United States. It's just incomprehensible that. We could take this thing that, yes, warts and all from an environmental perspective and, and uh, health perspective, and, and, but just the pride that people had and the, uh, the amount of knowledge that was passed on worker to worker, manager to manager to how to make things right. And then they have that come in and deliberately sabotaged by mm -hmm. Wall Street, it's it. I just get so angry with reading these things. And yeah. so, so, but but you do have this idea that 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 is that lesson has been remembered in what you call Maine's folk political economy. And tell yeah. us a little bit about that and what you think that this folk political economy, both in Maine and, and at large, because this is in, in many uh, areas in the country that where manufacturing is left. What can it teach us? What what's the net? Where where do we go from here? Sure, sure. Um, and as I mentioned before we uh, started the interview, I'm continuing to research on this topic. Um, so, well, let me put it this way. So I had this perspective on financialization from a lot of academic literature that I you know, read and taught about. Um, and then I encountered it in the stories and the research because I did a lot of you know, newspaper and archival research as well um, about this. Um, but you know, the thing that happened in, in the country in the United States was just this sort of ideological and institutional shift that I describe in the book, a lot of scholars in the industrial labor relations field write about this, um, that um, you know, what took off around uh, 1980 was the rise of this institutional investor, which are Wall Street companies like BlackRock um, uh, that manage pension funds and you know, large stock index funds and, and things of that nature. Um, and you know the ironic thing is, is that all this capital represents the savings of working and middle-class people around the country, but they don't control how it's used, Wall Street does. And there was this rise of this concept of shareholder primacy, a very important book that I teach and that I talk a lot about um, uh, that came out about six, seven years ago is David Wiles, um, The Fisher Workplace, where he really does a version of what I do in my book. I mean, it's a much more comprehensive story than mine. 
um, where he examines how uh, Wall Street specifically put cor pushed corporations in the late 80s and 90s to adopt this idea of core competency to shrink your employment to only those who are essential to the core competency. So like Apple employs a million people around the planet, but they only have about 70,000 direct employees. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of um, subcontracting, offshoring, all that kind of stuff kind of comes with that. So, um, you know, I think the larger story of the last 40 years is that the rampant inequality that has become one of the two or three central crises of our country, um, you know, comes more from financialization than people re realize. Um, so in the story of the folk political economy, what I was struck by is that I, I had these like people jumping out of their seats to tell me about S.D. Warren or reading memoirs that talk about uh, um, uh, Hugh Chisholm, who founded uh, both International Paper and Oxford Paper Company, two major companies that originated in Maine. Um, but how these communities had these like memories of that, you know, and I was, okay, it's community memory. What is this about? Like everyone's repeating the same stories or versions of the same stories. And it was often about being rescued. And what they were talking about in these particular narratives about how, you know, just there was, there was a floor under everybody that was managed by these companies. Like nobody fell through the floor. If you got injured, you still got paid. You know, if you were an alcoholic, they kept you on the payrolls, even if you had to go, um, you know, go to rehab <laughs> three times a year. And there's stories by managers that they had a local hospital owned, you know, originally owned by the paper mill that they regularly like sent these World War II vets with PTSD to, uh, to dry out. But they talked about that. And then they talked about how all of a sudden um, the company was owned by people from out of state. Um, and they ruined the forests and they ran the mills into the ground and they, you know, and this, this, so, so, um, and as I dug into this and found it in different parts of the state and different versions of it, it became really clear to me that, um, that people who had lived through the experience of two different phases of American capitalism understood it that way. And they did it in a folk way. So it wasn't academic. That's why I use the adjective folk. Um, but they understood that, you know, they had this industrial competence um, and they had the, um, the particular commitment um, of the employers to the employees and the communities and how that evaporated. And what was it replaced by? It was replaced by uh, conflict. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the interview in the 80s, um, these companies started to ask for really draconian uh, cutbacks. It was part of, you know, we want to raise your profit rates and your share price, so you have to squeeze labor. Um, and this is not any other industry. This is like, you know, this intricate uh, production process, intricate set of skills, a lot of independence and respect by managers for the senior workers and all of that. And that was being, you know, pushed aside. And in some cases, in the case of international paper, this big strike that happened in Jay in 1987, 1988, they purposely pushed the workers into striking so they could permanently replace them with non-union workers. So, you know, the way that they were able to tell the story about how this all happened really lined up with an academic perspective on these two phases of American capitalism. And, you know, and they were basically, you know, I think one of the things that I, I say in a number of places in the book is that one of the things that I think we're talking about nationally in this country right now is the tension between the marketplace and a moral community. 
Um, in a marketplace idea of capitalism, that it's all about transactions, it's all about individual businesses, consumers and workers just, you know, making, you know, market exchanges on a daily basis and, uh, you know, kind of an Adam Smith story of everybody looks out to their self-interest and good things come out of that. Um, and then a moral perspective, and I think one of the things that the folk political economy really speaks to is that if you're the fifth generation worker in a particular community, particular mill with pride in what you do and a long legacy with a particular institution, that institution is not a bundle of decomposable assets, to use the language of some of the economists who support financialization. It's a living thing with people and commitments and traditions in them. Um, and I think that, you know, the debate in the country over the last 30 or 40 years has been, are we a marketplace society or are we, are we a moral society with markets as part of it? Um, and they were citing with that, we're a moral community we're, we're with markets as part of it. And so markets should be embedded in moral uh, practices and moral um, uh, relationships. Um, and if you talk to somebody, um, I have a friend from college who has been a senior R&D vice president in Silicon Valley over the last 30 years. And when I talk to him, it's all cutthroat, you know? It's all, you know, we can't put capital into something that doesn't make, make the average rate of profit because your waste, you know, that's gonna be destroyed by the marketplace. And the fact of the matter is that there are other countries where um, those financial rules don't exist. Those financial rules didn't exist before 1980 in the country and, and they don't really exist in the same way the same ruthless way in countries like Japan or Germany or Sweden or, or Denmark. So, um, so with all of that in mind, I really think that um, you know there's a legitimacy to the place of moral commitments in our economy. That is now the conversation we're having about inequality. You know, which is that if we have a country that has doubled its GDP per capita in the last 30 or 40 years, and we have more poor people, we have a third of the country working, you know, starvation or non-livable wages. Um, and you just have to pick up good journalism from the New York Times or something to see all this stuff going on. Um, what are we doing? You know, <laughs> uh, why do people struggle with massive amount of debt that they can never get out from under because they went to college and they didn't quite finish, but they had 40 or $50,000 of debt, and then they can only get $12 an hour jobs and they're just screwed for the rest of their life. Housing insecurity. So there's just, you know, certainly health, health, uh, uh, healthcare insecurity. So there's all these different things that we see in capitalism right now. And at the heart of it, we have this um, financial class uh, that, I mean, if you know much about what they're doing besides running companies in the ground and taking good paying employment systems and replace them with, you know, minimum wage uh, precarious employment systems and spending 100% or more of their profits on propping up share prices, which is what's gone on the last uh, 15 years or so. I mean, like there's, there's a looting going on of our existing corporations at the top that most people don't understand. Um, and so what I'm really struck by is that when this started to wash over the country and it came to Maine and hit these particular workers in this industry, they saw something up front and they had some really um, human insight about what was wrong with it. Um, and so I connect what they're saying to what we're facing right now. Um, the struggle that we see going on in the country, you know, in, in the halls of Washington in October, uh, September, October, 2021, it's sort of like, are we gonna bend uh, some of this wealth 
um, towards, um, you know, creating a, a moral economic system um, because we don't have it right now. And it's gotten worse over the last couple of decades. Yeah. So I, I think, I think that that's, we had talked about before uh, the interview that your book has taken off. There's a lot that, that you've written it for a general readership and you're getting, and you've written it for the state of Maine and a lot of Maine nerds, as well as people from the rest of the country. This is, this is uh, information that you said, Sometimes you can see this in the New York Times, but not everyone reads the New York Times. And so you, you've, you've brought this accessible story with the narrative from not only the workers, but also the, the managerial class, as well as the, the forces from Wall Street. And we know what can we learn from this and how can we move forward? I think that that's what our country is at the crossroads, that a good chunk of the population is saying our country is not moving in the right direction. And that a, a, a revisitation of this moral economy, as you describe it, sounds good to me. Um, yeah. And other countries have successfully done it as well. Well, that's the thing. That's the thing. I mean, you know, one of the uh, big academic questions uh, by people who bend towards the progressive or left side um, who think about societal issues is is, is capitalism compatible with that kind of moral economic system. And there's some some critics who think that it's absolutely not. And you can pick up a, a radical magazine like Jacobin and get, you know, 20 articles a month <laughs> telling you that it's just not possible unless you convert to some other kind of system. Mm -hmm. And we know that millennials are like, you know, roughly 50-50 at worst um, in favoring socialism over capitalism. Um, although what people mean by that is kind of up in the air. But I think, you know, uh, the answer that I have is that um, uh, that I think there are elements of, you know, a moral society in capitalism. I think it was limited. And I try and be clear about the limits of what, it, you know, was true in the paper industry. And I talk about some of the consequences for workers and, you know, health problems, things like that in the industry. Uh, but that said, um, you know, there's there's a kind of language in academia of embedded capitalism when capitalism embedded in institutions that humanize the economy, um, then, yeah, you can have a version of capitalism, um, but not one where you have the version of capitalism that we have in the United States right now, you know, and uh, a related literature is that and, and it's something that I teach in a lot of uh, uh, classes to undergraduate and graduate students is that we have like the meanest uh, a business elite in capitalist history, <laughs> or, or one of the meanest, um, you know, that they've been very social Darwinian all along. They saw uh, they, uh, business organized in the 40s, 50s, and 60s to ideologically and politically kill the New Deal, um, which again was a humanization of capitalism with social security and legalization of unions and things like that. And they've, they've gone after that pretty successfully uh, with the rise of Reagan and everything like that. Um, and so, you know, it's like they're just to be really empirical about it. It's like you need to have balance in society. Um, one of the main uh, narratives in the labor relations field is that um, Paul Osterman says this in a book called Securing Prosperity, wrote about 20 years ago, and a lot of people reference it, that, you know, what do we want in a, in a labor market? You know, if you talk about a national labor market, well, you want efficiency, you want the right workers and the right jobs, right? And that's a big issue in 2021 right now with the discombobulation of the pandemic. Um, but then, you know, especially from the point of workers, you want economic security, you want opportunities for upward mobility, you want equity within the firm and within the economy. And very important, you want worker voice, you want workers to have a meaningful say in the conditions and 
features of their work. And it's possible to make commodities for a profit in privately owned companies and have those characteristics. Uh, but it takes a very different set of uh, institutions and class forces than uh, we've had in this country in the last 40 years. So, um, so I think it's possible. I think, you know, again, we're on the brink here in the fall of 2021 of some significant improvements in some of those areas. Uh, one of the concepts that I like to use most in talking about this is the idea of a social wage, which is the part of your standard living that you get through the uh, government provision as opposed to um, the market. And, um, you know, I think what modern capitalism has taught us is that it's hard to have a moral economy if you don't have an ample um, and, and consistent social wage. Um, and so, you know, we see uh, a lot of troubles with uh, uh, raising children right now in terms of childcare, pre-K and stuff like that, and then dealing with the aging population. Both cases, the labor model is to pay uh, people who take care of our most cherished loved ones, you know, $12 an hour in insecure employment. So those are things that you can identify, talk about and fix. There's some legislation right now to deal with it. I think over the longer run, um, changing the model of what's called corporate governance, which is, you know, what version of who controls a corporation and what purposes do they bring it. And I think financialization has proved to be horrible for society. And there are reform proposals from senators, um, uh, Elizabeth Warren, but especially Senator Baldwin from Wisconsin, you know, that have worked with the academics who are experts on this and said, you know, we should eliminate stock buybacks and we should put workers on corporate boards of uh, directors. And so, you know, I think the models exist. Um, I think experts like myself, and really when I say experts like myself, I'm really drawing on all of this collective expertise that I'm just trying to channel. Um, but, you know, the expertise, the policy proposals, and even some of the political will is there, but we have a long way to go, obviously. Definitely, definitely. Well, I'm sure we could talk uh, all day. Uh, you're a fascinating person to talk with. And, and I want to thank you again for all the hard work you've put into this research, uh, you know, decade and a half, putting this into this, uh, this great book, Shredding Paper, The Rise and Fall of Maine's Mighty Paper Industry. Uh, we're proud to be publishing your book to get it uh, to the largest audience possible. We look forward to your next book, potentially. Um, yes. and, and thank you for all the work that you've been doing. Uh, to promote the the uh, these uh, your book, but also the stories and, and getting the story out there so more and more people can hear this. Can um, I say a couple brief things before we go? Yes, please. Uh, I do want to tell people that they could look this up on the internet, that I have um, two podcasts that I produce with my oral history interviews, so you can hear the stories of the workers and managers from their own mouths. Um, one is called Madawaska Rebellion, and the other is called Remembering Mother Warren. Um, so I would urge people to look into that because we now live in the podcast generation. Then the second thing I would say is I just really want to thank uh, Fran Benson and ILR uh, Press for um, for publishing my book. Uh, Fran was a wonderful editor to work with. Uh, and ILR Press has done a wonderful job telling the, the stories about workers and capitalism that deserve to be told. So I'm honored to be part of it. Oh, well, we're honored as well. Sure. Thank you so much. We really appreciate uh, you coming to our podcast. And it was great talking with you. My pleasure. That was Michael Hillard, author of Shredding Paper, Labor and the Rise and Fall of Maine's Mighty Paper Industry. If you'd like to read his new book, visit our website at cornellpress.cornell.edu and use the promo code 09POD to save 30%. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSAnnounce and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. 
Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.